As we turn now in our Bibles to Luke uh, 17, uh, we pick up right where we left off last week. Uh, And this week, uh, a much shorter section, a much more unified section, uh, but a section that presents our our minds and our hearts uh, for for obedience. Uh, It tells us about Christ. It it reveals to us uh, God and and what he is like. Uh, And and as as all scripture does, it demands of us uh, faithfulness and, and response that is appropriate. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, we need to approach this text uh, not, with, uh, not with a way of uh, seeing it just on face value and, and coming to it and, and saying things like, oh, I know that Jesus can, can do healings, which he has done many times in Luke's gospel. But we need to, with, with careful ears and with careful eyes, uh, focus on why Luke includes this here, what is the purpose of it, and uh, even with uh, the familiarity which we might have with this text, uh, we ought to come to it with, with fresh hearts uh, because the Word of God is able to teach us much in every time uh, we encounter it. So uh, in this text, what you're going to see is that Christ is our healer. Christ Jesus is the healer of his people, uh, the healer of his body. He is the one who presents our ultimate hope for healing and for restoration. And he is the one who dispenses healing and re- uh, a renewal of the body, even in his earthly ministry. But one of the things that comes up immediately in the text and comes up as kind of the punchline of the text is the danger of going to God for what God can give to us and failing to actually develop a approach to God that seeks him and him alone regardless of what he gives us. Uh, You'll notice the difference between the nine lepers who don't come and worship Christ and the one who does. The difference between those two is that the nine are all healed, just like the one is healed, but one of them comes back not because he needs healing, not because he needs something from God, but because he can respond rightly in worship towards God after he has been given great blessings. When I was uh, a young boy growing up, uh, for a period of time in, in my youth, I was going to grade school, and my mother would pick, up, pick us up every day after school at the same time. We'd be picked up in a little circular parking lot where all the cars would drive through, And when we were in the second and third grade, every single day we would find, my brother and I, we'd find our sister, and we'd stand in the same spot waiting for our mom to pick us up. And she had, at that time, developed a habit of bringing us snacks so that when we would come to the car after school, we would have something to satiate our hunger, hold us over until we got home and raided the pantry. One of the things that happened very quickly within only a matter of two or three weeks uh, is we began to do things like get in the car, and instead of saying, hi, mom, nice to see you, we would say, where are the snacks? And we would, we would no longer look forward to seeing our mom in the car after school. Uh, we would only be looking forward to the snacks that our mom could provide for us after school. Uh, I have no memory of any of this snack incident because my mom told me this story years later. And it's because when you're, three years, when you're, when you're in the third grade, you don't make connections like, am I seeking the person or the gift or the giver? You don't, you don't, you don't think about stuff like that. But it really did hurt my mom's feelings when we did that as kids because she began to think, they don't care about me, they care about what I can give them. And so to avoid any kind of conflict, she stopped giving us snacks. (laughs) (laughs) This is a little bit what it is like in this text where you see the lepers coming to Jesus for a genuine need, a genuine thing that they require, but only one of them, as it turns out in the end, is seeking Jesus to have a relationship with him beyond what he can get out of it. Nine of them only go to Jesus for what they can get out of the situation. 
And scripture throughout testifies to this, this tension that we have, knowing that God is powerful, knowing that God promises to bless us, knowing that God gives to us a host of benefits, isn't there a severe danger in going to God only for the benefits that he provides? Isn't it a severe temptation for us in our own hearts to only approach God for what he can give to us and not merely to have a relationship with him? It is this kind of danger that the text of Luke here addresses and brings to our minds. And the text tells us that in this uh, approaching of Jesus and, and going before him and seeking healing, one of the key things that tells us how we have approached God and, and what is our motive for going to him is the aspect of worship. Worship in this text is the indicator of thanksgiving and therefore true, genuine, heartfelt relationship with Jesus or just having a transactional relationship with him. Worship is the difference maker between the two. And this is true for us today. Every day in your heart, Christian, you go around with a war for your heart, a war of worship going on in the day-to-day -day walking and living and moving. You go to work in the morning, you get there safely, uh, and you think to yourself, well, it has been uh, lucky that I had good weather and good traffic and I have arrived here safely. Uh, you might think about you achieving all the uh, earnings of your job and getting a paycheck at the end of the, the week and thinking, wow, I have done such a good job to earn this paycheck. And all the while you are ceasing to go to the giver of these gifts in worship to acknowledge that he is the giver of the gifts. He is the giver of safety, the giver of health, the giver of sustenance, the giver of all good and perfect gifts which are given to us. It's a war of worship. And so the tension that we have then, the challenge that we have, is to regularly correct our hearts, take our thoughts captive, and actively worship God because Scripture instructs us towards worship and adoration of our King. So first, let's see it in the text, and then we'll ask the question, where else do we see this in the text of Scripture? One of the things we see here is in verse 11, that this is Jesus still on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus on the way to Jerusalem was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, if you were to pull up a map of the Middle East and you were to take your time trying to map out how this all makes sense, uh, there's going to be a great difficulty because if Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, he's not going through Samaria and Galilee to do so. That's actually going in the opposite direction of Jerusalem. So it immediately presents us a problem if you're going to pull up a map and try to figure this out, except that we know that when Luke is telling us about Jesus's journey to Jerusalem, He's not telling us about an itinerary of events that he goes with one time to Jerusalem, but he's thematically focusing in the reader's minds and in the reader's thoughts, the end goal of what is to happen at Jerusalem as the central governing point for all of the happenings from chapter 9, verse 51 onward in Luke's gospel. The first time we are told that Jesus fixes his mind to go to Jerusalem happens in chapter 9, verse 51. It's referenced again in chapter 13 to remind us that this whole thematic story is on the way to Jerusalem. And then here in chapter 17, we are told once again, Jesus is still on the way to Jerusalem. The purpose is for you and I thematically to recognize everything he's doing here is going to be later shadowed in for us in light of the cross, in light of what happens at Jerusalem, in light of what he accomplishes at Jerusalem. That colors in everything that he's doing on his journey to Jerusalem. So don't think about it as a, a, a road itinerary, like you pull up a Google Maps image and you, and you type in two locations and you get a straight line address. That's not what Luke is communicating to us. He's thematically coloring in all of Jesus's ministry 
in light of Jerusalem. Jesus, on his way to the goal of his ministry, is here now traveling between Samaria and Galilee. And as he's traveling through these towns, he goes into an unnamed village because the location isn't important. And we meet 10 unnamed lepers because their personalities and and names and identities in history aren't actually all that important. He goes to 10 people who need help, who are in desperate need of healing. And he sees them in his random encounter, well, his providential encounter in his earthly ministry. One of the things we see in the text uh, is that the lepers have to stand off at a distance from Christ. Now, we know that in Luke's gospel, he's encountered lepers before. At that other time, when he encounters a leper, he actually lays his hand on the leper and heals him. But leprosy is something that would have made an Israelite unclean. It would have made someone unfit to interact in community with other people. If you had leprosy, and let's say you had a family, you couldn't interact with your family. It's, it's a quarantine kind of situation. You're not able to interact. You're not able to have, have meals together. In fact, if they wanted to give you food, what they would often do is drop the food in a neutral location for you to pick it up later because you're unclean and they are clean and you cannot violate that. To have leprosy is to be cut off from the community of Israel. In Leviticus 13 and 14, there are lots of laws that tell us all about the, the, really the suffering that leprosy incurs onto an Israelite person. But what the lepers would do is they would gather together because, well, they can't make each other unclean, so they, they commune together. And here we find 10 of them who have to stand at a distance and call to Jesus and ask him for help. When they see Jesus, verse 13, they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now you'll notice they don't tell him what kind of mercy they need, and that's because it's obvious what kind of mercy they need. Similarly, when you see elsewhere in Luke's gospel, uh, for example, a woman who is caught in adultery, uh, she is brought before, she goes to Jesus uh, at the evening of a feast, And he tells her, woman, your sins are forgiven you. And why does he not name specific sins at that moment? Well, because everyone knows this woman's sins. It is obvious what she she is being forgiven of. Similarly, here in the text, when they cry for mercy, they're crying for mercy not in a generic sense, but in a specific sense. But it's so visually obvious what they need mercy for that that needs no further elaboration. It is an obvious kind of mercy which needs to be dealt out. And no doubt they've heard of Jesus These are 10 lepers who we're we're to assume have never encountered Jesus before. And yet, they know about Jesus well enough to know that he can probably swing this kind of healing if he delights to. And this tells us just how profound Jesus' earthly ministry was. He was well known everywhere for the kind of things that he was doing. He He is recognized commonly as a healer at this moment in his ministry. Now this is to be contrasted with earlier in Luke's gospel where there is relative doubt whether or not Jesus can do these kinds of healings or not. You'll remember that several times early in the chapters of Luke's gospel, there's an encounter between Jesus and religious leaders or Jesus and people where the question is, can he heal? Will you be able to heal? Will he be able to do so? But at this point in the text, the ability to heal is a given factor because for now 17 chapters, his ability to heal has been proven over and over and over again. So narratively, that's not really a question anymore. Now the question becomes, well, how do you respond to his healing. This is where the angle of the text moves. It's no longer telling us about Jesus so much as it tells us about our necessary response to Jesus. So when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now that's a strange instruction. That's a strange thing for him to say. 
But Jesus can heal anyone however he pleases. He does all kinds of fun ways to heal people. Sometimes he spits in the mud and rubs it on their eyes. Sometimes he tells them to go wash in a pool. He, he does all kinds of things to heal people, and he can do whatever he wants because he's God Almighty. So he can tell you to do whatever he wants you to do, and that will be the means by which he dispenses the healing. He can lay his hands on and heal. He can say, be healed, and you are healed. He can say, stretch out your hand, and the man was the stretched out hand as a restored hand. And here in the text, he says, go to the priest and go present yourself before him. And it is on the way to the priest, verse 14, that they were cleansed. So they're not promised the healing. They cry out for mercy. He says, go to the priest, present yourself. And on the way over, the leprosy goes away for all 10 of these men now in isolation. Much like every other time in the Gospel of Luke and in all of the New Testament testimony, something is special about the way in which Jesus heals as opposed to fake healings that could also happen in that near first century era. The healings of Jesus are undeniable, instantaneous, and obvious to everyone. When Jesus heals, there's no question what just happened. There's no question of did it really happen? It's obvious to the eyes, to the mind, to everyone around that this really did happen. There's no denying it. It also happens instantaneously. It is not as though Jesus tells them to go present themselves before the priests and several months pass and then the leprosy alleviates itself. That's not the kind of healing Jesus does. He does instantaneous kind of healing, in the moment kind of healing, healing that takes place immediately in the life of these individuals. And that healing is always, the, sh the showing of Christ's power in the world is always to the benefit of people. You'll notice that in his compassion, in his kindness, Christ often is pleased to reveal himself by alleviating human circumstances, human brokenness, human uh, affliction, human ailments. You'll think about the other time he healed a leper. You might consider the time when he makes the paralytic to walk. Every time in Luke's gospel, Jesus puts his power on display. It is for the benefit of people. Now, God can put his power on display any number of ways, but consistently throughout the pages of Scripture, when God really wants to show that he is powerful, really wants to show that he is mighty and beyond question and uh, without, without any doubt this sovereign, supreme being and ruler, he does so to the benefit of his people. He does so with their benefit in mind. You might consider God squaring off against Pharaoh in Egypt, where he does so not just to have a power struggle with Pharaoh, but so that he can liberate his people from slavery. You might consider Jesus here when he is going to show his power of healing, his healing capabilities. He does so for these 10 lepers who are immediately impacted and given a blessing of grace by the healing that they experience. It, he does so to the benefit of humanity by displaying his power. We are often the recipients of God's blessing when God chooses to give us his blessings. We are, uh, inherently, uh, we are inherently the recipients of his compassion, his grace, his, his power. It's often put on display in our lives. But as we'll see in the text, the purpose of the blessing and the healing is not to prove that God is powerful, but it's ultimately to orient our hearts back towards worshiping God who is powerful. The text does not question whether or not Jesus is mighty to save, mighty to heal. The question of the text is, will the lepers respond in worship to his healing, to his activity of saving? What we see then is that when they are healed, what happens is the strange thing in verse 15, 
Only one of them, when he, saw was he, when, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Only one of the ten turns back, goes back to Jesus to praise him. So first we see that he praises God with a loud voice. Now the question is, how does he praise God? And we can see in verse 16, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. This is a, a demonstration of, of worship. He falls before the feet of Jesus, praising God, as the text tells us. And the striking thing in the text, the punchline, is this man is a Samaritan. This man is a Samaritan. Luke loves to include for us in his gospel account instances of Gentile inclusion into the family of God, not because he's creating a novelty on the pages of Scripture, but because he's highlighting the expansive character of the kingdom of God, namely here to tell us that it's a Samaritan who turns in faithfulness towards Christ to worship him. And we can say, contrasting that with the other nine, who we're not told what they are, what their identity is, but it is likely, it is likely that the highlight here of Samaritan implies that the other nine were Israelites. It is likely that when he highlights this man being a Samaritan, it is to the shame of the Israelites who ought to have rightly responded to him, the other nine. Now this man, the Samaritan, rightly responds in worship to Jesus, rightly responds praising him, falling on his face before him. And notice the, the use of distance in the text. In verse 12, the ten lepers must stand at a distance, removed from Jesus, asking for mercy. And after the healing, the one who turns back can go right to Jesus' feet to worship him. Notice the use of distance there, that, that this man can now come in proximity to him, in closeness to him, now that he has been healed, and he can worship him rightly in proximity. This tells us a great deal about us as, as creatures, as humans. We are created body and soul as, as creatures. We are not disembodied souls who roam around trapped in bodies. We are not only bodies and, not, and, and have no spiritual component. We are embodied souls. We have both body and soul, which combine in the human person, in the human creature, to tell us about how we ought to worship and respond to God, which is that we don't just worship him in our hearts without our bodies being involved. And here, the healed leper puts his full body on display, falling before the feet of Jesus in close proximity to him in worship. It tells us a great deal about who we are because your and I's bodies tell us a great deal about where our hearts are oriented. This is why it is often the case with prayer that we close our eyes and bow our heads. Sometimes we kneel because it tells our hearts and it tells our minds what's going on. Our physical posture gives us a sense of awareness and a sense of uh, importance to that moment. We are embodied creatures. This Samaritan, when he goes to worship Jesus, he falls on his face before his feet, not because that's the only way to worship Jesus, but because it certainly is a fitting response of worship to Jesus to fall before his feet and worship him, giving him thanks. That is a, a striking display for us of how we ought to respond in worship to the king. We'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But let's first see what Jesus uh, contrasts this man's worship with the other nine. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. The answer is obvious. Yes, Jesus can count. There were 10 that he healed and cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? This man with other genes, this man who's not a pure blood Israelite is, is, is no one else found to come and worship the king except this foreigner? 
that highlights something that's going on in Luke's gospel for, for a number of chapters, namely the Pharisaical rejection of Jesus and the Gentile inclusion into the kingdom as a response. It's something we'll look to in just a moment to highlight, so put a pin in that as well. And then verse 19, Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Now, if you're reading out of an ESV or an NIV or an NLT, the translation there will render, your faith has made you well, your faith has healed you, something to that effect. The Christian Standard Bible and the Legacy Standard Bible translate this phrase, saved you, your faith has saved you. And this is because the text of, of, of Luke here is highlighting something different that this man receives that the other nine do not receive. Ten receive healing, ten receive cleansing, one receives rescuing, one receives saving. It's a different word, a different vocabulary item that tells us this man is rescued or saved as an act of faith. His faith has saved him, which is to be contrasted with the nine whose faith did not save them because, well, they have no display of faith. Ten are healed, one is saved. Now, I told you to put a pin in a couple of ideas. I want to circle back to those. But now that we have the scope of the text, we have the kind of varying aspects of response, we see once again in the text of Luke here two kinds of responses to Jesus. And the striking thing about the two different kinds of responses is that the people who should respond rightly to him, Israelite lepers, do not respond rightly to him. And the one who does respond rightly is a Samaritan leper, one who is not really expected to respond in worship. This has been highlighted all over the text of Luke's gospel, but just to take you to an early occurrence of it, I want to take you to Luke chapter 4, where we see this uh, on display, this idea. Now, Luke chapter 4, Jesus uh, goes to a synagogue, he opens a scroll, he reads from Isaiah's scroll, and he tells us uh, essentially about his mission, his purpose in the gospel of Luke, what he's uh, coming to do. And then what happens immediately as he reads the scroll, he opens it, he unveils it before their eyes. He notices that people begin to reject him. People within the synagogue are not accepting his testimony about his mission. You'll see this in Luke chapter 4, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Doubting what he has said, doubting that he is really going to fulfill these messianic expectations. And Jesus at this moment does two things to explain and clarify for them how historically there's precedent for their rejection leading to other people benefiting. So here you see in the text, first he gives the example of Elijah. So if you look at verse uh, 25 of the text, he says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came on the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, get it, someone who's not an Israelite, to a woman there who was a widow. And then verse 27, Jesus' second example of this principle. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When he had heard all these things, the synagogue was filled with wrath and rose up to kill him. So Jesus is telling us early in the chapters of Luke's gospel, hey, here's a principle for my ministry, a principle for the fact that in my earthly ministry, those who are supposed to receive me do not. They reject me. And those who are 
the strangest people, the least expected to receive me, actually do receive me. He gives historical precedent. Elijah and Elisha both meet out this principle. In both cases, Israelites are in need, and yet they are sent to foreigners, those outside of the fold of faith. Here in Luke 17, there's a mix of people that are in need, all lepers, but only the Samaritan responds with an appropriate demonstration of worship and faith to the shame of the Israelites. Now, this is a true historical thing that does happen. The healing of the lepers by Jesus does happen. But Luke includes it thematically to tell us a lot about the fact that the Pharisees are the number one group who is rejecting Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gentiles are responding favorably to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It is a a principle, an illustration, an example of the fact that this is a true principle for Jesus in his whole ministry, that he is received by foreigners and outsiders, and he is rejected by those of the household of faith. John tells us this, that Jesus came into this world, but his own did not receive him. His own people did not accept him as the Messiah. It's a strange and striking thing, but it tells us a lot about the human rebellious heart's capacity to reject what is fitting and right for it to receive. It tells us a great deal about even those in the church, even, the, even, even people who've grown up in the church their whole life, who know all the truth of God's word, all of the truth of scripture, that does not guarantee an appropriate response of salvation and belief and faith as is demand. In fact, to the shame of many people who've grown up in the church for their whole lives, there is no response of faith, no right response towards the saving work of God in the world. It's a strange thing, and yet it is a true thing. It speaks true things about us even today in the world. Those who have had no experience in church can respond faithfully to God when they see his hand at work. And those within the church are strangely hardened, often it seems, to the work of God to convert people, to heal people, to show grace to people. It's a strange thing, and yet it is true about our world. So we see that in the text. We see this kind of principle throughout the Gospel of Luke. But the other thing that we see in the text, the other thing that separates these two groups is not just their identity, whether whether they are Israelites or not, but the other thing that separates them is this response of worship. And I mentioned earlier, in your and I's hearts, throughout the week, throughout the day, there's a battle of worship raging in our hearts at all points in time. This starts in the morning when your alarm goes off first thing, and you fumble around in the dark trying to turn off the alarm, you try to get out of bed, and you recognize that you have no capacity in your heart to want to open up the pages of Scripture. There's no desire in you to go to your knees and pray to the Lord. It's kind of cold on the floor. It's warmer in the bed. Uh, you go to work and you think, I'm too busy to sit down and pray over my schedule for the day. I'm just going to kind of plow through my emails, plow through my task list. When you get home at night, you're tired. It's been a long day. And you have no capacity in your heart to desire to pray, to seek the Lord and thank him for all his providence throughout the day. It is a a war of worship that rages in our hearts throughout our experience, throughout our existence. This is our existence as people in a fallen world, that we tend to deny right worship to God, which is owed to him. The right response of all the lepers is to worship him. We look from a distance at the text and we say, obviously they should worship him because he's the one who healed them. And yet the whole testimony of scripture tells us that actually every blessing that you and I experience in our life is meted to us from God through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And so then every blessing testifies to God's graciousness to us and thus demands a response of worship. Historically, Christians have prayed before meals to say, 
thank you, Lord, for the daily bread which you have provided to us now. We thank you that it comes from your hand, that you have been pleased to provide this to us. Would you bless it to our bodies? This is a historical precedent to say that even the food that we buy with our own money is not actually our earnings. It's actually God's gift of blessing to us. It's God's grace to us, which demands a worshipful acknowledgement, a thankful response. It's what it demands of us. But this isn't just something that is an abstract principle in the pages of Scripture. The denial of worship actually goes hand in hand with rebellion against God. Now to see this, I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And this text is one that classically explains the rebellion and hardness of the human heart. But in Romans chapter 1, we find out something interesting about the place of worship in this rebellion process. I'll start reading in verse 18, but I won't read the whole section because very quickly we see that worship is denied God. Chapter 18, or sorry, verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, at this point, it's all things about God, facts about God, understanding of God. But the understanding of God is denied in two ways. And that's what verse 21 makes clear. For although they knew God, so although they knew these things plainly, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the denial of the rebellion of God is twofold. It's not, a, it's not only a knowledge rebellion, a failure to honor and recognize God. It's also a failure to worship God. Consider the rebellion of Satan, who knows better than you and I everything theologically and exegetically. He, he's got better knowledge of all things than you and I do. But he's still in rebellion. How is he in rebellion? Not in his knowledge denial of God but in his worship denial of God. He fails to worship God with all that he knows about him. In the human rebellion, there's two things that happen. A knowledge rejection of God, an intellectual decoupling of God from his throne, and subsequently, a failure to worship God rightly, for he is the one who sits on the throne and demands right worship of us. The pages of scripture make clear a, a rejection of worship is rebellion. And often, especially today with us who are so unaware of how often we deny worship to God, it is one that goes often unchecked. It is one that we often should take, take captive our thoughts and confess as sin before God and say, Lord, open my heart to have worshipful capacity for you. Let me respond faithfully in worship towards all the good gifts that you have given to me. Do we not struggle to give thanks for the daily blessings that God gives to us? Consider even this last week, all of the things that went well for you. Getting to work, turning in assignments on time, getting a, a good job email from a boss or a coworker, fellowshipping with other people who are friends or other believers that you have, every meal that you ate, every night when you put your head to the pillow and woke up the next morning, safe, alive, in an air-conditioned house, in a comfortable room, 
all of these things are things that we begin to take for granted because humans believe that we are autonomous creatures. In our denial of God, in our rebellion against him, we believe the lie that we are self-sustaining autonomous creatures and we fail to recognize that it is actually only by God's gracious gifts to us that we receive blessings. Now, you don't need to take just my word for it or Paul's word for it, uh, but one other point of data that I'd like us to look at for the, to, to seal the deal on this case, this is in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. This is Paul again writing, but not about the denial of, not about the rebellion of sin, but here he's magnifying the glory of God, the preeminence of Christ, and using the same kind of language to tell us all about God's graciousness to us. He says this about Christ Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the one who holds together all creation. So when you and I enjoy aspects of creation, food, clothes, warmth, shelter, it is Christ who holds these blessings together for us. It is him who upholds all things. One of the worst misconceptions that Christians have fallen into in the 21st century is the belief that God created the world initially and then has ceased to be involved in it since that point on. The truth of the matter is that God created the world initially and in an ongoing way must sustain the world by his power, by his active will to sustain the world, to sustain our life, to sustain our blessings. And when God actively gives us all those blessings, the only fitting response is for us to respond in worship and thankfulness to it. It is not as though we are now receiving blessings that God has set in motion from the beginning of time. God actively gives you and I food shelter, health, friendship. He gives to us all blessings actively of his will. He is not a passive God, but he is intimately involved in his creation, intimately involved with his creatures. What we see in the text then, specifically the text of Luke, is a highlighted microcosmic situation that tells us about a broader truth of the human condition, namely that we all struggle to worship Christ rightly. We all struggle with worship and what this text does, it just highlights one example, exhibit A, of how we struggle to worship. It says that in the case of the lepers who were healed, only one of them responds rightly in worship. But what it magnifies for us is the obvious thing, that Jesus is the one who provides the healing, so he must be worshipped. But we could extend this. Jesus is the one who provides you and I health, so he deserves worship. Jesus is the one who provides us every blessing, so he deserves worship for every blessing that he provides us. And this text tells us about a greater truth in Scripture, that every blessing which is given to us by God, and it is all of them, demands the right response of thankfulness and worship towards him. We often only think about sin in terms of the active rebellion that we do. And not so often do we think about sin in terms of the passive things that we fail to do rightly. But sin is both active and passive. And passively, one of the greatest sins we commit on a regular basis is failing to actively obey and worship God rightly. It is something that we don't do, that we ought to do. But there is good news in all of this. 
which is that even in our failure to worship God, God's glory is not diminished. C.S. Lewis says it this way in the book, The Problem of Pain. A man can no more diminish the glory of God by refusing to worship him than a lunatic could blot out the sun by scribbling the words darkness on the walls of his cell. Our failure to worship God doesn't actually threaten the glory of God. It doesn't actually threaten his magnitude or his sovereignty. No more could we take away from God's glory than a lunatic could blot out the sun, as Lewis so eloquently says. But Christian, there's more than just the common grace response of glory that you owe God. You owe God glory and praise and worship for the unique gift of salvation which he has given to you, which is actually a higher burden of worship response. The ten lepers are all responsible to worship Christ because he heals them all. But the one leper who is saved now has an additional duty, an additional burden to recognize that act of grace as another opportunity to respond in even more magnificent worship to the, to the Savior, to the King. Now to highlight this, you don't need to turn there, but go in your minds to Revelation 5 and 6, where we are taken to the throne of worship before the King Jesus. And we are told that the living creatures all around sing to him, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and wealth and dominion and power. He is worthy for worship. And in that case, it's highlighting not for his sovereign sustaining of the universe, but in that case, his unique salvation of his people, which is worthy of worship. So as a believer, as a Christian, your response of worship is heightened. It is magnified because God has done something more for you than he has done for the rest. He has saved you in a unique way, and that unique saving requires unique worship. It requires additional responses of grace and worship. It requires us to have more praise on a regular basis of him. Whereas everyone in the world should rightly respond to God in worship, Christians uniquely are tasked with an increased burden of worship because of the unique work that Christ has done in our lives to save us and to redeem us and to buy us by his blood. So worship is the right response to God for everyone, but especially, especially for believers. So then think about all the times we fail to worship God, not just for the gifts that he gives us, but for the fact that we fail to worship him and recall the fact that he has saved us, he has forgiven us, he has redeemed us, and he is the one who sustains us in that endeavor, in that saving. Because God saves Christians, Christians have an, an additional worship response towards him. So our struggle with this, with worship, make no mistake, it's, it's a sin problem at its heart. At its core, it's a sin problem. But the good news of that is that Christ Jesus has already taken care of the sin problem that afflicts humanity. Recognizing something to be a sin problem is one step in the right direction because we already have the solution for every sin problem. Namely, we take it to the cross, we confess it to the Lord, and we trust that he is mighty to save every sin in which we fall short. Not just the sins that you are aware of that you fall short in, but also the sins that you are not aware of that you fall short in. Know this, every sin you've ever confessed in your entire life to God is not even a fraction of the sin you've ever committed. And it's not even a good testimony to the sin you will commit in the future. But God does not wait for our repentance to forgive us. He is mighty to save us from all of our sin, even our imperfect repentance, even our imperfect confession. He is mighty to save us in all of it. 
So because our struggle with worship is a sin problem, we can take heart because confessing sin is not dangerous for Christians. Confessing sin is our regular lifeblood of worship to the king because as soon as we confess our sin, we can worship him because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. God's gracious response to take care of the sin problem is another opportunity for worship. So confessing our inability to worship presents for us an actual opportunity to respond in worship to the king. Now, you might not often think about it in this way, but I think it's a wonderful way to look at this text. Because as soon as we recognize our own hard posture's inability to worship, and as soon as we recognize we should confess that as sin, we recognize immediately another opportunity to worship God for his forgiveness and his saving and his mighty work. It presents us immediately with an opportunity to actively obey in a way that we have not previously obeyed in the past. And what a gift that is, that God not only presents us salvation, but he gives us ample opportunity to respond rightly in worship towards him. God, our Savior, has taken care of every single sin that we've ever committed. He has wiped our slate clean, even the slate of imperfect worship towards him. And then he turns to us and says, walk in me, newness of life, new creation, forgiveness, sanctification, wholeness, the power of the Spirit, which on this side of eternity will always lead to more imperfect obedience. So don't expect for you to go out the doors tomorrow or wake up in the morning tomorrow and all of a sudden have perfect active obedience and worship ready to present to the Lord as though that testifies to your salvation or not. It actually testifies to the fact that you are work in progress as God is pleased to keep Christians as works in progress, even unto glory. Now this is, this is good news for us because our developmental sanctification, our progressive sanctification, is something that teaches us much about God's patience and long-suffering towards us. When God created the world, he created it slower than he had to create it. You recognize that if God created the world in six days, he did not have to wait all six to create the world. It took him longer to create the world than it really needed to because God enjoys the progress of unfolding his revelation. When God tells the promise of the Savior, which is to enter the world, he enjoys the progress of working that out over thousands of years in the life of the Israelites to work out that salvation. So when God saves you, and then for 60 or 80 years sanctifies you before your death and glorification, that's exactly how God is pleased to work. That progressive, ongoing aspect is God's means of working in the world, which means it should not lead to our discouragement, but it should testify to us that we are right where he wants us, right where he's working in us, and we should draw great confidence from that because it's exactly how he does work in the world. So because Christ is our healer, we worship him for all of the common grace blessings that he gives us. As Christians, we recognize that he has healed us also from our sin and our brokenness and our corruption. And because Christ is our healer, we also worship him, rightly respond to him, because of our future expectation of ultimate healing, final healing, in glorification. We will no longer have perishing bodies, no longer have perishing experiences of sin and corruption, but we will know him and see him and love him. And even that future hope is an opportunity for praise and worship because it gives us a picture of what is promised to us, and it tells us much about our hope in the future 
and what Christ has already accomplished. And it gives us another expectation to respond to God and say, Lord, thank you that you have appointed to me a day in which I will no longer struggle with sin, no longer struggle with corruption, where those who I love will no longer struggle with the afflictions of this world, but we will experience a day where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more affliction in this lifetime. That hope, that future, is yet another presentation and opportunity to worship the King of Kings because he has definitively accomplished that by his death and resurrection. He promises it to us, he merits it for us, and he guarantees it to us by his testimony, by his spirit, and by his very blood. Let's pray. Our Father and King, we worship you because, Lord, there is no other response. You are a God worthy of worship. You are a God worthy of all worship, of every creature, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, every language. Everything in all the earth and under the earth and over the earth deserves and ought to worship you. And so, Lord, we worship you for that reason alone. We thank you that you give us opportunity, ample opportunity to engage in worship, and that you have been pleased to redeem your people for an eternity of worship of you. We thank you for all these things in your name. Amen.